Well, in a real sense, Christianity stands or falls on the basis of words. Specifically, the particularity of words. That words have definition and that words have meaning. What we call the nomenclature of our faith. The distinction between words, the definition of words, the relationship between words and the subtle nuances of words. Now, Christianity, as you know, has some workhorse words that are just a part of our vocabulary. Some of them need very little definition. Jesus, worship, sin, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, hope, salvation, even the word God itself or himself. And from this broad category of words, this big panoply of letters that come together that make words, one, I think, stands out and has become the most precious to me the older I get and the more I grow in my faith. It should be a favorite word of every believer. It should be one of your favorite words, or at least near the top. Yes, there's precious words. The name Jesus stands above every other name and certainly the word God is to solicit our worship and our adoration. It's an obvious head of the list. But there's a word, a concept, a powerful gift from God and I think our love for every other important word really traces its value back to this one concept or this one word. So I would make an argument, not an absolute argument, but a strong one that the Christian's favorite word, or at least mine, is the word grace. God's unmerited gift and favor to one who believes. Now, understanding the Grace of God has tremendous benefits. It will unlock your position before God. It will unlock your passion for God. Your soul's worship will flow from it. It will bring peace and joy and security. Grace will bring perspective in the middle of difficulties. It will invite God into our lives in a way that's welcome and not where we see Him as a judge. It invites us to love God and it settles the heart's struggling of the most intensive attack I think Satan has on a believer. I've talked to, uh, it's not fair to say hundreds, thousands of believers over the course of my ministry. And if there's one significant struggle that most Christians have either deep in their heart that's unspoken about or something that's troubling them so much it's all they can talk about, It's the issue of assurance. How do I know I'm saved? Now, you may be on one of those two extremes where it's all you can think about, it's all you can talk about. There was a young man that I I counseled when I was out at Grace Church in California and we must have spent dozens of hours over and over and over talking about his lack of assurance. I think I believe, but I'm not sure. 
I know I believe, but I'm still not sure. And then we got into the enoughs, right? I, I just don't feel like I pray enough to be a Christian or, or give enough to be a Christian or attend enough or go to Bible study enough or, or, or repent enough and on and on and on. And we, we talked, I have to admit, even as his friend and his shepherd, when he would show up on my calendar, I would take a deep breath and say, God, I, I need grace to say the same thing again. But you could be on the other side of the spectrum where you've struggled with assurance, but you've struggled silently. Oh, you know how to come to church and act the part and have joy and enjoy fellowship, read your Bible, sing songs. But sometimes, typically at night, you put your head on your pillow, you take a deep breath, and you ask yourself subtly and quietly, am I sure that I'm saved? All of that points back to a lack of understanding of grace. Now, let me set the historical context of the uh, sola gratia, what we're going to be looking at tonight, which is the Latin for grace alone, that is the same context we've looked at for the other solas. Sola scriptura is scripture alone. Sola fide was faith alone. We'll be looking tonight at sola gratia, which is grace alone. Solus Christus is Christ alone. And soli deo gloria is God alone. God alone to whom belongs glory. These were all forged in the context of the Protestant Reformation and they were actually a reflex and a response to what Catholicism was teaching about our access to God. Now, the challenge is, as we've said over and over, and I want to remind you, it's not that Catholicism disbelieved in Scripture. They believe in Scripture, just not Scripture alone as the authority. You would add the Pope and the Magisterium and the Canons and the Councils the fathers. They believed in faith, just not faith alone. It was faith plus the merit of your own works, faith plus the prayers of the saints. They did believe in grace, just not grace alone. To grace was added effort and to grace was added uh, a store of merit that you and I would store up for ourselves or we could even store up for someone else. Oh, sure, they believe in Christ, but just not Christ alone. There's also Mary and there's the Pope. And to the glory of God alone is is something that Catholicism would affirm that God gets glory, but all you need to do is look at the history of Catholicism and most of the glory is enshrined in saints and their icons in Mary and in anything and everything but God himself. So we turn tonight to look at sola gratia, by grace alone. I think it's fair to say this might have been the central theme of the Reformation. Now, we talked about the material principle or the primary mover of the, of the Reformation being sola fide or by faith alone. But this is the one that really had the, the most, the most uh, fatal rub with Catholicism. And it all had to do with the mass or the sacrifice. Even to this day, when uh, uh, Catholics will gather to celebrate the mass, they believe that there is a special grace 
dispensed in that because Christ symbolically for them, but in a real sense, as those elements are changed into the, bloody and, uh, the, the body and blood of Christ, he's re-crucified, therefore grace is re-dispensed in the mass. Catholicism looks to the mass as its central feature to access grace, and we would look to the gospel as our central access to grace. Our righteous standing before God, as we've studied over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Romans, is because we stand before God with alien righteousness, right? Not, not like little green men with big eyes. Alien means foreign, foreign to a human. Alien righteousness being divine righteousness that he, I love this word, imputes, credits to our account. He fills our spiritual bank account with righteousness, not from ourselves, generated from our own effort, but from Christ and his merit and his righteousness. In contrast, the doctrine of self-merit taught by Rome rubs directly against the grain of what God has done in the gospel. Self-merit... Self-merit is not merely a Catholic phenomenon. Now, let me explain to you what I mean. Remember, we were talking about the word enough. All of us understand and can identify with Catholicism at the heart level because we are all natural-born Catholics. And what I mean by that is we naturally don't think we've done enough and we need to add to what God has done so that he looks at us with his favor based on our effort, based on our works, based on our resume, even day by day. So that you wake up and some days you think, well, I'm going to do better. And by the end of the day, you think, well, God must not be very pleased with me because my day had more negatives than positives. Or you have a good day and you think God must be really proud of me because I, had, I shared Christ. I did this, that, or the other. That's not how Christ measures us. That's our merit. And it works completely against sola gratia. The Baptist Confession of 1689 says, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them, he made a proper, real, full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf, that is believers. Then he says this, their justification is only of free grace. What is sola gratia? Well, as in with all of the other solas, it's modified by the term sola, and the noun is gratia, sola alone. And we've said over and over, and I, please don't weary of me saying this, we have to beware of the two dangerous words that come in to attack the solas, and that's the word and and the word but. I know the Bible says that and the magisterium and the Catholic Church and the church councils and the father, fathers. And we have to be careful in our con, con, uh, context to say and that preacher on the radio and my pastor and my Bible study leader and my care group leader. The, we're supposed to be, as leaders, helpful in uh, 
giving a, 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 an additional insight into what's true, but not generators of what's true. And then we have to be careful of the word but. Well, I know the Bible says that, but. Let me give you some examples. I believe the scriptures are inspired, but not all the Bible is God's word. I've heard that. I believe the Bible is God's word, and so are the voices I hear. I, I was told that by a, a gentleman one time. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, but there are many other ways to heaven as well. I believe that Jesus is indeed the Savior, and he cares so much about everyone, he would never send anyone to hell. Others might say, I believe that salvation is by grace, the grace of God, but a person, if he is good enough, God would certainly not let them into heaven. He would let them in for sure. Another would say, I believe that God's grace saves and man will always choose God if given enough evidence. Others would say, I believe salvation is through faith, but I have to contribute my effort Yes, salvation is acquired through faith and works and church attendance and giving and evangelism and repentance and on and on. I believe another would say that God should receive credit for salvation, but surely he wants to honor those wise enough to choose him. I want God to be glorified and I want some credit though for being in partnership with him. Instead of all of these statements, the reformers affirm that salvation is based on Scripture alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, and for God's glory alone. He alone gets the credit. Every other scheme of man religiously is based on human achievement. Only biblical Christianity is based on the accomplishment of God and His Son. That's why these, these doctrines are critical. That's why you need to own and understand and be able to not only articulate but defend these solas. That's sola. Now, let's look at gratia, which is the Latin word for grace. Grace is defined in Greek and Hebrew by God's undeserved gift and favor. Now let's just park right there. God's undeserved gift and favor. The undeserved is on our part. We, we don't deserve God's gift. We don't deserve God's favor. And yet he grants it. Here's the point. Salvation, as we read over and over in the text, is God granting favor to someone who doesn't deserve it and who has by nature been a rebel against him from birth. It's an unearned gift from God for Jesus' sake. It's the opposite of self-works and self-righteousness. And the doctrine asserts divine, this is an important word, monergism in terms of salvation. Now there are two words that you need to remember that the theologians throw around, but, but they're really simple when you look at the, at the root. Monergism and synergism. Salvation by grace alone is monergistic. God does it by himself. Synergism is, means we do something with God is a little bit more complicated, but that's basically how sanctification works, right? Work out your salvation. Whose responsibility is he pointing to? Yours. For it is God who is at work within you. So who's doing the work of your sanctification? You or God? The answer? Yes. We are responsible to respond to God, but still we would not respond to God without his quickening grace. 
God is monergistic in calling us to himself. He acts alone to save the sinner. The responsibility then for salvation never rests on a sinner. Now, we've talked a little bit about this. We're gonna have to dive into it a little bit more tonight, which is the exact opposite of what is called Arminianism. Now, Arminianism has has, uh, its roots of saying that we are participants in saving ourselves with God. That without us, God would never have saved us. Now, you got to be careful. I know the songs we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I know that we sing, I believe. Praise God for that. You and I would have never believed unless God turned the light on for us to believe though. You know why? We're going to find out in Ephesians in a minute. Because we were dead. And dead people don't respond. Now let's look for a moment. We'll come back to the Arminian debate in a second. As some biblical foundations for sola gratia, you can, you can mark these, you can write these down, or you can flip back and forth very carefully. Acts 15 verse 11 is the Jerusalem council where they were, they were getting their heads together, the early apostles, to try to sort out what does it mean to have an older testament? What does the law and Judaism mean in light of the coming new gospel? If he's the Jewish Messiah, are we saved by grace alone or... Are we saved by keeping the works of the law and grace? That's a great question. Their conclusion in Acts 15 verse 11 is this. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. This is a Jew saying he's saved in the same way as a Gentile. It's incredible. We're only saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. I don't know how much clearer it could be. We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as the Gentiles, as those who have no Old Testament background are. Turn over to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians is full of grace. If you wanna do a study of grace, just read and dive into and study the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, we'll stop at a few places here in Ephesians, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Here it is. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Three times in this passage he says to the praise of the glory of his grace. Paul stops and says, hang on, you need to understand when we look at salvation, this points, we wanna praise the magnificence, the glory, the unspeakable majesty of his grace that he gave us what we didn't deserve. Turn the page over to Ephesians 2. You know this well, but this is, 
This was the passage in the Reformation that was the watershed dividing point on the Rockies that sent water either east or west. And you were, say it with me, dead. Just stop right there. I know you know this passage, but just stop right there. You were dead. Physically? No. What does he mean? He tells us, in your trespasses and your sins. In other words, in your response because of our sin, dead to God, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all, we, uh, we formerly lived in the lust of our own flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, given that condition, except stop, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Now look at this parallel. He takes us from death to life, and then he puts the parentheses, by grace you have been saved literally from such a death. You see where the parallel is? He, there's that, the, Greek, the New American Standard puts parentheses around here. It's an, a positive statement in the Greek. It's something that matches. It's, it's just a restatement. He made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised him up, raised us up with him seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, I love this, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Do you understand understand what's being said here? He raises us from spiritual death to life in Christ and it says he sets us up, raised us up, seats us in the heavenly places so that he may show, that's, That's the word that he may show a trophy of. He makes us trophies of eternity by saving us from spiritual death to spiritual life by the death of his son. Wow. That's all introduction to the verses we usually look at. For by grace you've been saved. Through faith. See how grace and faith work hand in glove? Not as a result of works. In other words, not not as a consequence of anything we can add or do so that no one may boast. Don't miss that. If we add anything to our salvation, we add something to our salvation so we get some glory. Titus chapter 3. Again, as clear as it could be. I think sometimes we sing these things, we talk about these things, we say these things, and we lose the the power of, of what they sounded like the first time our soul heard them. Titus 3, 7. Being justified, made right with God, given righteousness by His grace. So, what are we to do with this? What does this mean? 
it should have a dramatic effect on our evangelism, a dramatic impact on our church. It should correct our understanding of church growth. It has a penetrating effect on how we pray, on what we pray. It has a stimulating effect on the way we view God. I didn't know this, but this was a couple of years ago. I was driving with one of my sons, and he asked me an unexpected question. He said, Dad, and I I didn't even recognize this. He says, Dad, I noticed that when you pray, it seems that you always or often thank God for grace. Why why is that? Basically, he was asking me, is is that part of the prayer formula? Is, Is that... Is that part of the grease that gets it to heaven? Why, why do you pray that? And I, it was a great thing for me to think about. It. And I think it's because I'm so, I'm so thankful for grace, for the gift. I think it should be a reflex of our souls. Why then? I want to ask a question and just answer it very briefly. Why, why is there opposition at all? And we could even say so much opposition in church history to Grace. Why would people be disturbed by or in opposition to God giving something? The reason is because sola gratia is synonymous with the doctrines of divine election, predestination, and God's sovereignty and salvation. I will say this as clear as I can. You cannot hold to a biblical doctrine of grace and an Arminian or Pelagian, we'll see that in a minute, view of man's contribution to salvation. They're impossible, they're incongruous. Now, those were some big words. Let me explain what I meant. Let's ask a question. I want to give you two answers. Why do people oppose sola gratia? Why oppose grace alone? The first reason is because people hold on to a concept called free will. They believe that man has free will. Just, I want everybody to look around. How many of you have heard the term free will? I think that's almost all of us. The question is, is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as free will? Free will is understood as the ability to choose between good and evil by our Arminian friends. No reference to the grace of God, no reference to external constraint or the imposition of God on the soul. Normally, the issue pertains to the question of free will after the fall. Now, if you trace church history, I'm not gonna give you a bunch of dates and and debates except to say this, that this was first debated between um, Augustine or Augustine and Pelagius who was deemed a heretic at the Council of Ephesus in 431. But the bottom line is Augustinianism, as we've, we've come to call it, uh, theology flowing from Augustine, held that, listen, after the fall of man, our desire, our will, our ability is inherently enslaved and corrupted by original sin. So that no one is born tabula rasa with a clean slate. No one is born morally neutral. No one is born with moral innocence. No child is born good until bad comes on them. That's what Augustine taught. That's what we believe. 
Pelagius taught something quite different. Pelagius taught that, taught that we're inherently good when we're born, we're innocent when we're born, and we have, even after living sinfully, have a part of our mind that's what we would call unaffected by the noetic effects of sin. What does that mean? It's morally neutral and has the ability to choose God or Satan, good or evil, right or wrong, righteousness or sin. And Pelagius taught that. You may have heard people talk about Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. That's where this comes from. It opposed uh, uh, um, Augustine doctrine, uh, Augustine's doctrine and his idea that we are born with sin and that later became paralleled, by the way, with the debate between the Calvinists and the Arminians. It's the exact identical debate. Is God sovereign and in charge of raising the dead spiritually or is man? But understand, before we say is God sovereign over salvation, the bigger question is, does man need that? Or does man have in himself the innate power and the moral neutrality to decide about God and following him or not, good or evil. Arminianism and Pelagianism says that man is not completely dead, nor totally depraved, nor completely unable. That's the crux of the matter. Pelagians deny that man has original sin. They don't think he's morally and spiritually unable. And you've heard the term maybe semi-Pelagianism. They regard man as sick. But Augustinians and Calvinists regard man as spiritually dead. We just read in Ephesians. There's an interesting passage tucked away in a book that you probably don't spend much time in, maybe once a year through the Bible, in 1 Kings chapter 8, just listen, verse 46. When they sin against you, and the Hebrew says, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, says you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy. There is no man who does not sin. So to really understand, appreciate, apply the doctrine of sola gratia begins with the understanding that we are such desperate, wicked sinners from birth. We've said all along, you, you, you can't, as a parent, you can't do anything to mess your kids up. They come that way. You can certainly aggravate their sin and give them temptations that will will pull sin out of them, but we can't add sin to their, their nature. They come that way and talk to any honest parent who's raised a two-year-old and they will affirm that truth. Said another way, there's no such thing as free will. By free will, that typically means you're morally neutral and you can decide between God or not. There's just no such thing. Romans 6 says we are born as slaves to Sin, slaves to it. So be careful when someone says, well, you do believe in free will, don't you? Just hand them a Bible and say, I'd really like to see that term in, in, in your Bible, free will. 
The Bible teaches that our will is not free. It's enslaved to sin, completely broken, and dead. We've talked about this illustration before. It's like God is broadcasting on FM and we have an AM transistor with a broken antenna, with the knobs broken off, and the wires all cut, and the on-off switch broken off, and the batteries removed, and it's on the moon, and we have no arms to reach it if we were there, and we're dead. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, we are ultimately unable. That's why when we sing, I love our church when we sing grace, grace, God's grace. I hear the cry of souls who understand the gift that grace is. But there's another reason I think people push back against sola gratia, and that's the pressure of pragmatism. Everyone wants to experience success, Christian success, ministerial success, but to desire successful ministry without an absolute dependence on sola gratia means we're contributing. It can lead to attempting ministry in the flesh, by fleshly means, with fleshly effort. You can just look to the church growth movement. If you do this, then God will do that. If you will do this, then God will do this. Is, is that true? Remember the quote I read to you this morning with, with the one pastor who says that you can control the growth of your church by the kind of music you play? Where's that in the Bible? It affects our pragmatism with evangelism. Now, I want to give you a footnote here. I have heard some say, some Arminian friends say that those Calvinists or Augustinians, which we would be here at Mission Road, those who believe in sola gratia and sola fide, they would never evangelize. They have no motivation to evangelize. It's actually just the opposite. 2 Corinthians 2 says our message is for some, it's death to death. It confirms their condemnation because they're, they, they've been given a clear gospel they're going to reject. And from others, from life to life. Then he says, who is worthy of such things? We, we're, we're ambassadors for God. He's amazed that God would use us in God's election predestination process of bringing people to Christ. Paul says, this is amazing. You don't know who's elect. You don't know who's predestined. So we tell everyone, I love what uh, Spurgeon says, I believe like a Calvinist and I preach like an Arminian. In other words, I don't know who the elect are, so... I'm going to evangelize anyone and everyone. It affects our pragmatism in discipleship. Do we really understand that discipleship really is the process of helping people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord? 2 Peter 3, 18 says, that's one of the oddest verses in the Bible to me and one of the most wonderful. Grow in God's gift. Grow in the grace. If God's the one who gives grace, how do we grow in it? I think we do so by understanding it, by appreciating it, by thank, being thankful for it, by applying it. And I want to say this about evangelism and discipleship and church growth. I'm not sure that I've ever met an honest denier of God's sovereignty of salvation. 
I'm not sure I've ever met an honest Armenian. I don't think they're outright liars. What I mean by honest is that they're, they're consistent. Think about this. Anyone who has ever prayed for someone's salvation is in the very prayer request admitting that God is sovereign in salvation. Are we not? If you're saying, God, please save so-and-so, God, please work in so-and-so's heart, are we not saying that God can interpose His will on the will of someone else to bring them to understand the gospel? Is that not God being the worker in salvation? An honest Arminian would never ask God to change anyone's heart because God wouldn't. It's up to the individual. We believe, we so wonderfully believe that it's completely a gift of God to us and we don't deserve it. We just don't deserve it. One of the most expensive regrets of my life is my ignorance about automobiles. My uncle was an auto mechanic and I had plenty of opportunities to learn about cars and he used to tear down engines and put them together and I used to play in the yard when he did that. They lived next door to us. There was an auto, auto mechanic elective at my high school. We had a mechanic workshop that I could have taken and I, I never did that. And Many of the history of the repairs on my many, many cars <laughs> would have cost me very little if I knew what I was doing. I think so many Christians are like that regarding grace. I just wonder how much our lack of understanding grace has cost us with assurance, security, spiritual growth, fellowship, prayer, evangelism, the enjoyment of worship. Because we, we don't really understand it. We don't understand the gift. In 1982, I took my first plane flight. We weren't very, we were pretty poor actually growing up and the idea of flying was only for rich people and I could, I remember when uh, my, my friend flew to somewhere and he got a Pan Am little vinyl bag and I was just blown away. The idea of flying and laying in my yard and looking at jet trails and just, it was incredible and then I was in school in California and was going to fly home for Christmas. It was a Delta L-1011, almost an empty flight. I was sitting in the window seat with my face plastered on, on the side of that thing, taking pictures. And, and I mean, the stewardess must have just thought I was, um, I, I was crazy. I was so enthralled with this. And he came by with the, the, the drink cart and she says, would you like something to drink? I said, oh, no, no, no. And they came by with this, what, and remember, I'm 18, was a delicious smelling meal. Would you like beef or chicken? Oh, no, 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 no. Got off a plane. My dad picked me up. 
Dad, I flew this. How was it? It was great. I could see clouds were above. Looking, looking down on clouds? Who does that besides God and people who fly? He says, oh, how was the meal? I said, well, I didn't have any money. He said, what? So I didn't have any money to buy the meal. So I, I mean, I, I just, can we stop at McDonald's? What? I don't know how to say this any other way, Dad. I had no money. He said, you already paid for the meal in the flight of the ticket. Talk about feeling stupid. (laughs) Do you understand the gift of God's grace that has sustained you, that has offered you, that is accessible to you? Anytime, at any moment, all day, every day, he is a giver of grace, kindness. He inclines himself to be favorable to us. Are you like that silly 18-year-old passing up on the meal because you don't think you have enough to pay for it? It's already paid for. We have been given so much. Do you, will you, can you fathom the gift of God's grace? You can't, listen, you're not good enough. You you just can't be cool enough. You can't impress God enough for God to elbow the angels and say, they made the cut. It's by His grace. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. What an undeserved act of God's kindness that God has chosen to give grace to hell-bound sinners and turn them away from eternal destruction to be sons and daughters, heavenly inhabitants. Let's go back to the beginning. Is grace one of your favorite words? Is grace one of your favorite concepts? Do you swim in it? Do you enjoy it? Do you live it? Do you learn it? Do you teach it? Do you talk about it? Do you pray about it? Do you meditate on it? The older I get, the more I'm amazed that God chose me, that God gave, that God gave me grace. I, I just, I'm just amazed. I'm just amazed but just like if I had learned auto mechanics from my uncle I'd be able to fix my car I really believe if you understood grace you could self heal your soul when you struggle the gift is there understanding what it is and how it applies what what a great pilgrimage to go on through your Bibles to read of the grace that's given to us.